Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Well, hello. It's episode three of the new season, and this is a really great guest. I was so excited to talk to Michelle McManus. Now, I think I'm speaking a bit quieter on this one because at the moment I'm in my hotel room in Newcastle. So sorry if you're in the room next to me. I'm on tour in the UK with Sarah Milliken, and we are having a lovely time. We started a three-night stint in Middlesbrough last night, and we had a blast. It was such a fun show. My guest in this episode is the result of me going through the wrong door last year at the Edinburgh Fringe and getting quite a surprise. If you enjoy this show, please do share it with somebody who you think would like it and who otherwise wouldn't get to hear it. And also, it would really help if you could share it on social media or leave a lovely review on iTunes. I promise if you leave a lovely review on iTunes, I will be your best friend. I promise. I also want to say thank you to the people that listen uh, regularly and that do post about it regularly on social media. Uh, You're lovely, wonderful people. I do read all the emails that come in to the Fascinated account. So if ever you have an idea for a guest for Fascinated, please do get in touch, fascinated.headstuff.org. And I know there's actually a few there that I have to reply to. So I promise I will get on that right after I finish recording this. Okay, here's the music. Hello, you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated Now. My experience of this guest began last year at the Edinburgh Fringe. I was headlining a Best of Irish show over at the Stand Comedy Club in Newtown, and this is a show that runs every day featuring Irish comedians at 6.30 in the evening at the Stand venues. During the Edinburgh Fringe, there are lots of venues at the Stand Comedy Club, and they all run shows at the same time. After my show, I took a wrong turn and I ended up outside a room where a Scottish comedian was on stage and she was killing it. She was absolutely hammering it and it sounded amazing. Now, in Edinburgh, when you hear a comedian ripping it up, you always want to know who it is. So I asked an usher and she said, oh, that's Michelle McManus. Now, I've never heard of a comedian called Michelle McManus. The only Michelle McManus I knew was the winner of Pop Idol. So I went back upstairs and I had another listen at the door and I heard this. Michelle was the winner of the last season of Pop Idol. When you see a contestant on a TV talent show, you can kind of predict how their career is going to go. But Michelle McManus goes against the grain on that. I to talk about your amazing show, which, am I right in saying that, is actually sold out for the festival? Yes, practically sold out. Well, we've sold out... Uh... The premise of The X Factor today is that ordinary people can be extraordinarily talented. But back on Pop Idol, the contestants tended to fit a type. From Michelle's first audition, it was obvious that she was a very talented singer and had the voice to go far, but she didn't fit that pop star mould. 
She wasn't a tiny wasted shrinking violet who would burst into tears before every ad break. When the live heat started, Michelle got a lot of attention early on, and most of it centered on her weight. One of the judges, Pete Waterman, was vocal about how she should not be in the competition, but her talent was undeniable. She nailed performances left, right and centre and ended up in the live final. The winner of Pop Idol 2003 is... Michelle! In the run-up to the final, she became aware that the record company backing the show weren't hugely enthusiastic about her. At the live final, when it was announced that she had won with 58% of the votes, she was completely overwhelmed. You are the Pop Idol 2003, how do you feel? Just, I just want to see. As the news was sinking in, she watched as Pete Waterman got up from the judge's desk and walked off the set in protest. Michelle's debut single, All This Time, immediately hit the number one spot. The album and second single, both called The Meaning of Love, followed. And then, that was it. It all ended so quickly. After the album, she embarked on a weight loss journey spearheaded by Gillian McKeith, which was filmed for a documentary. After this, Michelle realized quite quickly that if she stayed in London, she would end up on a treadmill of reality shows instead of doing what she loved, which was singing. She moved back to Scotland where she was embraced as a talented performer as opposed to a celebrity. Since then, she has worked consistently as a TV chat show host, a radio presenter, and of course, as a singer. She hosts a radio show on BBC Radio Scotland, she's a regular panellist on Loose Women, and she was the host of the Scottish daytime show, The Hour. Welcome back to The Hour this Friday tea time and to finish the week. What was most surprising to me was her reinvention as a comic in cabaret shows which have had sellout runs at the Edinburgh Fringe for the past five years. I went to see it last year and she was absolutely hilarious. Michelle had been reluctant to take her comedy shows outside of Scotland, until she met YouTube star Martin Hett. Martin was one of Michelle's biggest fans. He documented a 24-hour trip to see her on his YouTube channel. That was incredible and she gave me a shout out at the end of the show. She pointed and said thank you to everybody that travelled and pointed to me. And now we're at the back door, waiting. He promised Michelle that if she took her show to Manchester, he would make sure it was a sellout. This day two would not be complete without a hello from Michelle McManus. Hello, this lovely darling came all the way to see me and I am so happy. And it was. Last year, Martin was tragically killed by a suicide bomber along with 21 other people at an Ariana Grande concert at the Manchester Arena. Michelle sang and spoke at his funeral. Martin was also a super fan of pop idol winner Michelle McManus, who recalled how he'd promised a certain venue would be a sellout. Just the sweetest guy in the world. And literally two months later, my manager phoned me and she went, I don't know what's happened, but you've just sold out the Waterside Arts Centre. <laughs> we haven't even put a poster up yet. And I went, 
Michelle is just an absolutely lovely person. It's also pretty obvious that her longevity isn't an accident. She has her head firmly screwed on and she is one of the most positive and grateful people that I've met. You're going to absolutely love her because she is as lovely and as genuine as she seems. This is the very lovely Michelle McManus. So, Michelle McManus, okay, I've met you before, I met yeah. you last year at the Edinburgh Fringe, and the way I met you was quite strange, because I was walking through the stand, I heard an audience going insane for somebody, like going absolutely bananas, and when comedians hear audiences go mad, in Edinburgh particularly, there's always that thing of like, who's that? What are they doing? <laughs> who, who's that? Tell me. The finale of your show, you're singing the song, and when I heard it, I thought, okay, I'm going to see this show for a start. And it was absolutely brilliant. Aww. I mean, start to finish, it was absolutely hilarious. And I have to say, one of your routines was the funniest five minutes of any show I saw at the Fringe. Really? That year. Oh, my God. The story about you uh, singing the national anthem. At the boxing at the ring. Boxing match. It really happened. It's Did that really happen? Oh, in my life, that's the way it happened. It was... Uh, they just, I had been asked to sing the Flower of Scotland at the Ricky Burns fight. And when we got there, I don't really think, you know, it was all Sky Sports that had been through. And I just don't think they thought logistically how they were going to get me in the ring. You know, because boxers just jump up and they, <laughs> they get in the ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't until the actual moment in time, you know, where I had raised the question as I was about to, to go on and sing from the box, how are we getting me up there? And that's just when the carnage unfolded. Oh my because it's, I mean, the boxing rings are really high off the ground and, you know, they, they couldn't lower the ropes because the fighters were ready to come right out. And me trying to get in this boxing ring in high heels and this dress and this is how it all unfolded. It was it was all genuine that happened. That is unbelievable. And you had to be, so you'd be carried into the boxing ring? Yeah, I had two, guys, two guys had to lift me up. God love them. I mean, you know, no one, those two guys have probably never recovered. <laughs> And this was at this was at the Hydro, was it? In- uh, the SEC, yeah. Oh my Just God, so there was of- like there was like fifteen, twenty thousand people there, you know, and that's what, and it was just it's it was funny, and I think that's that's kind of the thing, you know. It was it's been the happiest mistake I've ever made, kind of falling into comedy because we, you know, it was never ever my intention to ever get into comedy. You know, I'm a singer and uh, you know I present on the radio and TV, but. This kind of came about because when you win something like Pop Idol, it doesn't happen to everyone every day. And I have had the the just the best kind of 14 years, 15 years since that point. But funny things happen to you because you find yourself in situations yeah. that you would never normally be in. You know, and I think, you know, I'm quite a self-deprecating person anyway. So over the years when I've, re- when I've told people these stories and they really laughed when I was kind of telling them and I'm thinking... But that genuinely did happen. And then, of course, one of my best mates is Bruce Devlin, who's just this incredible, incredible comedian. And we kind of came together and he said, you know, let's just put these... Let's create a character, an alter ego of you, this woman who thinks she's an international megastar, but she opens up her local little, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And and that's how it came about, really. Because it is. I suppose comedy comes from great stories. And, like, the story of winning... Pop Idol. That's an incredible story. But, like, and you're, like you said, it doesn't happen to everybody. It's so unique. And, and it was still, it feels like a movie I watched to someone else. I mean, it's still, it's still sometimes hard for me to kind of grasp the fact that it actually did happen because it was so, it was so surreal. And I've had the most incredible life as a result of that show. Um, so when did you, like, in your family, were, were you, were there other singers? Were you musical or...? We just, we grew up in a very, I mean, there was always a queue at our fireplace to sing at parties. You know, you didn't have to force okay. anyone to sing. I mean, you know, if you, 
you know, we were we were getting told to you were getting cut after a minute and a half. If okay, you didn't go in too <laughs> just reversing the course. Yeah, because there's so many people waiting to go up. My my gran was the most incredible singer. Um, you know, and we were all kind of Catholic, so you know, you learn to sing in chapel and stuff like that. And I, mean, I was in the choir by the time I was five, um, and we just we grew up in a very musical family. You know, there were seven of us living in a two bedroom house. I've got four sisters. You know, we were all in one bedroom, so we were all telling each other stories growing up. And you know, it, it, we had this kind of like little drama club going on, and and the in the room each night before we went to bed and my parents are kind of shouting up going you've been warned this is the sixth time you need yeah. to get to sleep <laughs> and you know and I used to line my sisters up and we'd have like a when Sister Act the movie came out that that was ours or oh, life changed forever yeah, was, yeah. so we we two. created our own <laughs> choir and you know all the harmonies and stuff so we kind of grew up you know in a, in a very kind of musical family this big kind of family party environment uh, and none of us were shy, you know, we had a lot of confidence and that really was it. You know, it was never supposed to be anything more than, uh, you know, a kind of hobby and fun and pastime. But then, of course, when I was about 23, no, that's not true. That was in Pop Idol, I was 23. So I was about 21, 22 when the first Pop Idol came out. Oh, yes, that was well, when Gareth. And I was working in a pub in Shawlands at the time, so I didn't see anything. And this is back in the days, as you'll remember, before social media, before, you know, YouTube catch up, nothing like if you didn't see it on the Saturday night, you, you didn't oh, see yeah, it. Yeah, you know, you yeah. was no unless you set up the, the VHS or something to record it. So it was the I had literally just caught the final when Will Young had won and I I think at the time everyone was so shocked Will had won because Gareth was the perfect pop That's prince. Right, yeah. You know, this kinda he was the he was the guy that was gonna win it. But and Will was kinda different, you know. He was you know, he wasn't uh, stereotypically what you would think of of this kinda young boy band pop star. Yeah. Uh and then this kind of strap came up at the bottom of the screen saying, if you want to enter next year, and of course my mates and I are all drunk, as we spent most of our 20s being really drunk. <laughs> And they're like, you should enter. And I was like, yeah, you're right, I'm going to enter. Absolutely steamboats. I, I barely remember, fo- I mean, I phoned how they understood me, I'll never know. And then this form came out, because it was an automated service, and you know how well a Scottish or an Irish accent goes down, you know, and you're like, Bridget Jones, Edge of Reason, I'm trying yeah. to pick the cinema, and it's like, you want to see The Matrix? I'm like, no, Bridget Jones, they just can't understand the word you're saying. Um, and and we, this form came out and I filled in and I remember at the time for Pop Idol you had to send a full length picture of yourself so they had to see what you looked like and I had to just make a little cassette tape of me singing a cappella and sent it off and then didn't hear anything for like a year or so oh, and wow. then kind of got this Willy Wonka golden envelope through the door about a year or so later saying okay you've been selected for an audition be here at this time at this place and, and that's how it all kind of started from there you know and again I just thought it was hilarious that I could tell my mates in the pub that I'd got an interview or an audition <laughs> for Pop Idol. Never could have imagined what was, was going to come from it. And when did you realise, um, like when you started to do the audition process, when did you realise, I'm moving on in this? I think it's when I went from, so I I think if, if the first time we went along, so there was none of this, uh, there was, nobody was pre-selected or anything. I mean, you literally, I queued. I think we were, they were in Glasgow for a couple of days and I think I queued for like two days. Oh, wow. You know, you just kept your place. When you when one day was finished, you got a number in the queue that you would return to oh, the next okay, day yeah. kind of thing. And because, of course, they hadn't pre-selected anyone, so they literally, producers had to just listen to you singing and then the judges kind of turned up on the third day. So when I get through the first round and it was Simon Cowell, um, Pete, 
was Pete Waterman there, that first one? I can't remember. It was Simon Cowell, yeah, Pete Waterman, Nicky Chapman, Dr Fox wasn't there for some reason. And uh, when I got through that first first stage, I thought, right, okay, I'll go to London and get chucked out then. And then we got to London and went down to 100. And then it was when I went to the final 50 and I won that that heat. So what they did was they did five weeks of, of 10 and each, two from each went through to the, oh, the final wow. 10. And when I won that, I won that by like 31%. So it was like the biggest. Ooh. And I remember at that point thinking, oh, right, okay, maybe maybe I'm not going to get chucked out the first round. And I remember having to phone my boss at the time going, I might need another couple of weeks off. I don't. I think I might be getting through. But we were so naive then because, yeah. you know, it, Pop Idol was so much in its infancy and these shows yeah. were very much, you know, we had no way of knowing. I mean, now with, you know, uh, the X Factor and all these shows, contestants know what they're walking into. They, yeah. they know what's yeah, coming. They're ready. And they're they're ready. ready. We were just, I genuinely thought, you know, at one point it would just all end and I would go back to go back to my job kind of thing. But I think when we when I went from the final 50 at the final 10, but then that's when things really heated up in the media for me because that's when the media started to take notice of me and it all went really negative from that point yeah. because of my weight, which was really interesting because that would never happen today now because no plus way. size is no. so celebrated. Yes, absolutely. But back then it was it was like I was the devil incarnate for some for some <laughs> of the media because they were just so appalled that this woman was so overweight and on telly and, you know, there was, you know, you had debates about it on the radio and stuff and you had uh, uh, the media kind of picking up on it and it would it almost that became even bigger I think than the, the singing at a point um, which was which was for me was just really weird because I'd been big my whole life and just was so comfortable with it yeah I mean I think that's what people really liked about you was that you were just very much yourself and you didn't seem like somebody that was just completely hung up no, I mean, like, God, everybody wants to lose weight. They're lying if they say they yeah, don't. Yeah. I start a new diet every Monday, honest to God. I'm on, like, my 18th <laughs> diet of 2018 already. It's like, we all want to be thinner. I look at people in magazines and look at women, and, you know, yeah, see, if I just stopped drinking and ate a bit less, I would be thinner. That's the well, There's no great secret. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but that's... If I just didn't eat so much rubbish, then I would be thinner. So it's not like I was kind of saying... I want to be this poster girl for obesity. I'm so happy, but I I knew who I was. I was content in my own skin. Yeah, and you and you were in a singing contest. And I was in a, and I was very naively thinking I was in a singing contest. But again, none of it really really affected me at that time because I never thought I was going to win. So therefore, this was a very short term problem. It wasn't going to oh, be. Oh, okay. It wasn't until I won that then I thought, oh right, I'm going to get hammered for this now and. And I did, you know, kind of. So when you were, say, the weeks when you were getting all that flack, so you, you, you're in those live finals with the mm. ten of them or whatever. Yeah. Um. So, what's it like when on a Tuesday, you are reading something about yourself in the tabloids and then going, I've got to sing in front of the nation well, <laughs> and I, pick a frock and all of those things that go with going on telly. Like, does that erode your confidence? Like at 23, I was a mess at 23. Well, you know, you think you think it would. None of that stuff really affects me until after I'd won because at the time I was just having so much fun because the thing about Pop Idol was, you know, they very ha- rarely had to use any sort of kind of Westlife music, you know, with the really, it's really sad and black and white with the VTs and then all of a sudden you get the key change and everything yeah, in the yeah. world's amazing. 
we had such a good, I mean, no one was crying and popping. There was no soap. They never interviewed us asking if any, our family had died or if we had any illnesses in our family. We literally, one week we were at a Love Actually premiere. The next week we had Alton Towers closed down for us to go along. The next week Elton John came to, to tutor wow, us, you know. Yeah, so yeah. popping was, the VTs that we did with Ant and Dec were really happy VTs, you know. No one, I don't think I ever cried on the show until I won. Like, not a tear. I was never asked anything personal. I was never asked to create a sob story or anything. So we were, it was like living in a, a bubble in a dream. So therefore, anything I kind of read on the Tuesday in the papers, I kind of giggled about it because okay. nothing because nothing could take away from this incredible. And we were all the best of friends and probably all the contestants because we didn't have any mentors. We weren't competing against each. We were competing against each other, but we didn't feel like it at the time. Okay. You know, we were just a group of young it was kids. Just the gang getting smaller, really. Oh, and it was really sad every time someone left. You know. Yeah. And we lived in one of these big mansions in Regent's Park. I mean, I came from Bayliston oh, wow. in, in Glasgow and I was living in Shawns with my mate at the time in a, in a two-bedroom apartment, but I'd never seen wealth like this. I'd never been in London and we were living in, you know, serious riches around us. And it was just, it was incredible. So I think during that experience, it wasn't until I won and then I was on my own that then it kind of all hit and then everything became about me because still on the show, you had like Sam and Mark were for the teenage girls. They were oh, dominating yeah, a yeah. lot of stuff. And, you know, it was all we were all kind of taking our fair share of of uh, stories coming out in the media. But it wasn't till, because I don't think even anyone in the media or the record company thought I was going to win because of my size. But then the night that I did win, something, I mean, something changed in the middle of, my, of me singing all this time. You know, kind of Pete Waterman stormed out. He was so upset that I had won. I remember, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. he walked away. That was terrible. Well, I think you've got to accept Pete Waterman for what he is. You know, he came from this huge kind of hit factory, the stock ache and Waterman yeah, era. Yeah. He's used to dealing with people like, you know, Bananarama and Kylie and Rick Astley and all these perfect pop, you know, pop stars. And for someone like me, I was quite offensive to Pete Waterman, you know, because he never commented on whether I could sing or not. He just was very very clear on the fact that there was no way I was going to make it because of my weight. And I suppose in terms of success, he was he was right because there was no way I was going to make it with my weight because I just I wasn't going to be allowed to make it because, you know, at that time, no one, very few people have looked like me and been, I mean, you've always got your examples, you know, you know, I know Alison Moy in her day was slightly larger and she was, you know, she looks incredible now, by the way. I went to see her live in Glasgow last yeah. year. Phenomenal. You know, she was kind of on the plump size, not just as big as I was, you know, and then you've always going to be able to pluck out guys like Meatloaf and stuff like that. But these are these are global megastars on a different level. Yeah. But yeah. in the charts at that time, there was no one really, you know, overweight. But it was, it was still pretty, like when you think of you a 23 year old that you've been through this like incredible competition the public have said no she's the one we want and then he walks away like I, that's the sad thing I think about Stockick and Waterman I always feel oh their hits were amazing mm -hmm. <laughs> but then the people you kind of think I, I wish I really wish that they maintained that image of you think it's kind of RuPaul producing those songs I know. and then you meet them and they're like I know. Yeah, oh my sure. God, RuPaul just incredible in every way, shape, or form. Imagine if RuPaul had been involved. I just in that. think. I imagine that it was RuPaul in the studio with Sonia. So should have been. Yeah. But you know, so when he kind of stormed out, and I remember at the time seeing the faces of the execs from the record company, and no one was reacting with joy when I won. You know, everyone kind of looked just a little bit scared because. Back then as well. And they blew a confetti cannon in your face. Oh, I know, and I'd lip, I'd, I had like <laughs> this Chanel lip gloss on, I just kind of stuck. But I knew then that's when the tide turned. See, the night that I won, there wasn't this reaction I expected. It was all just a bit, 
I got taken into a room and it was about, well, you've won, well done. So have a day off tomorrow and then we're going to get started the next day and we're going to push on with your album. And it was just all very... And I remember at the time my family were there so I wasn't caring, I was partying with them. But I vividly remember going to bed that night thinking, that was weird. I don't think they were happy I won. And it was just, of course, I've got no proof. It was just a feeling that I had at the time. And then kind of subsequently everything that followed after that, it kind of made more sense as, as time went on as to what happened. And what did happen? Because you you, you made the album the, the Meaning of Love. Yeah. Uh, which is a great album. There's some bops Aww. on that. I know. <laughs> there it really is. Like It's, it's funny because... I, Emotional. Emotional That's is a, a great song. song. I begged for emotional to be the second single, like properly begged, but they wouldn't they just wouldn't do it because unbeknown to me, they'd already given the song away to Diana eh, DeGarbo, I think her name was, an American idol. And oh. she released it in America. So I'd recorded it in, I think in two thousand four and she released it in two thousand and five. And at the time I didn't understand because it was my song that they they had given me on the album and I knew when we were recording the album there was so there was so many songs on the album that when I went to record so the album was recorded in the space of like I think 10 days like it was just really quick and I was not involved creatively in that process so I was just given a selection of songs to sing which is fair enough is what you would expect when you've just won a show like that and I remember every single producer that I went to and most of the time not all most of the time the producers were the songwriters as well and they were all just so delighted like this song's been lying there for like nine years we never thought they were going to use it and I was like (laughs) great this really fills me with a lot of confidence this is there's no big apart from all this time which was the big the big hit that they they had written specifically for the song which was a number one and uh, I think I might be wrong, but I think all this time was one of the only original songs that the winner ever got. You know, other than that, lots of winners recorded uh, uh, cover versions of songs. Oh. But as I was lucky, I was given my own song all this time, oh, and it wow. wasn't a cover. But you know that we were recording the album. And I'm thinking none of these songs are original. But there were so many great songs. Like Diane Warren wrote a track on the album. And Diane Warren writes for Celine Dion, yeah, for Beyonce. Yeah. So she wrote this amazing song called Invincible, which I still oh, love. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking this is the woman that writes for Celine Dion, and she's on my album kind of thing. But um, after the album came out, all this time it went to number one. I think it was number one for like three or four weeks or something. They wanted to go straight away with the meaning of love, and. I loved the meaning of love. It wasn't that I didn't, but I really wanted emotional because I felt like emotional was this upbeat song. Yeah, it, yeah. It made me younger. It was a bit more poppy. And I felt doing another ballad wasn't the right way to go, but I, but they assured me that it was the right way to go. And then when the meaning of love went to number 13, I was basically just told, that's it, it's finished, it's done. Really? And that happened in so wh- all in the space of three months. That was it. It was just over because the... Single had went to number one for four weeks. The album had went to, I think it was number three or number one, def- number one in, in the UK. And I think it may be number three in Ireland or something like that. And that was shaky because it hadn't been a you know a huge big number one for a couple of weeks. And then when they released The Meaning of Love, it came out the Brit week. So all the Brit artists were out that week and The Meaning oh, okay. of Love kind of just been in at 13, which I was really delighted about 13. But it was at that point the record company said, look, that's it, we're not going to take it any further. You're not going to release another single. We're not going to do anything else with this album. And I was kind of like, but we've got Invincible, we've got Emotional, we've got Cast the yeah, yeah. Gary Barlow and uh, Lucy Silvas had written a song on the album. It was brilliant. Um, but that was it. So the minute that happened within the first three months, I knew that this was, this was pretty much over before it began. And that's, I think, 
was probably the most difficult thing that ever happened yeah, I, because I thought give me a chance I've only just won please let me show you and it, it's funny you look back now and I'm thinking you know in some ways it was the best thing that ever happened to me but at the time it felt like the worst thing that could yeah. have ever happened you know and at that point you make a decision you make a decision and say you can go into a corner and cry and tell the world how badly you've been treated or you just dust yourself down and go do you know something I've got this amazing platform. I've only won the show a couple of months ago. Life will move on and, and life is what you make it and you move on with it. It's so hard to believe that that was still in your, that was in your tenure as the winner. Like you were a few months into being the winner. Just three months, three or four months. Done. Yeah, and then that was it over. So that's all it ever really lasted. It didn't last any longer than that. But it's one of these things because at that point there was other things going on. You know, Simon Kill had kind of announced he was going, not going to be involved with Pop anymore. He was going to go away and create his own show, The X Factor. And there was this huge big kind of fallout between, uh, I think, the makers of Pop Idol and Simon Cowell and all that kind of stuff, which was way above our heads at the time. Um, but that kind of took, that kind of was dominating what was going on. So for the rest of us artists that were left that weren't really like, on top priority we were just kind of and it all just kind of faded away from there and I remember at the time just being you know didn't really know what to do and didn't really know anyone in London and I had this wonderful lawyer her name was Anne Harrison and I thought Anne's really the only person I know in the world down here and I just kind of went to see her in our London office and she said look come in what's wrong and I said what do I do do I go back to Scotland or legally am I still in this contract with these people what do I do and Anne was amazing she just got me out my contract and then she introduced me to Mark and Alan Wogan who to were Terry Wogan's sons okay. and they, they ran a management company called Jogernet Management and they just totally took me under their wing with Alison who's my who's still oh, my manager wow. to this day and they just completely reshaped my career. You know, they kind of sat me down and said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I want to go out. I don't want to give up on singing. I kind of want to see if there's anything else I can do. And they just, they said, move back to Scotland. Let's start back in Scotland because, you know, that's where, you know, that's where my the, the people, you know, my family were. That's where I had the most support. And I kind of came back to Scotland in 2007, 2008 and just started doing little things like working for Radio Scotland and doing the Scottish results for the Eurovision stuff that was yeah, coming cool, in, you know, cool. I was like, no poids. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love it all, I love Eurovision. Dream job. And then kind of got a break uh, with STV doing their, Scotland's version of kind of the one show, which was oh, the, yeah, the, the hour. hour. Yeah. And then just never looked back from there. So if, if I hadn't had their guidance to do that um, and start again, I'd have probably just... I don't know. I don't think I would have ever... I mean, I've been offered to do all the different reality TV shows like I'm a Celeb and Big Brother and all the rest of it, and it's just never been for me. Yeah, I, I remember reading a quote that you said that you got out of London because you felt that if you'd stayed, you, you would... That's the sort of stuff you would have ended up yeah. doing. You would have ended up just trotting around doing that sort of I stuff. I would have. Just, that's a very adult decision. Because the thing is, I never wanted to be famous that badly. You know, I... Listen, I love these programmes. I totally understand why people do Celebrity Big Brother and I'm a yeah. Celebrity. They are incredible to watch. They're brilliant. But I just don't care about being famous enough to do those programmes. Yeah. Love watching them. Have no interest in being in them. I've no interest on going on TV and talking about my private life and sharing every intimate detail about myself. I just don't care. I don't want to be famous badly enough. I just, I think I just want to work, you know, and if yeah. I wasn't going to make it in the kind of entertainment world. I wanted, I definitely just wanted, I wanted to give it a bash. I didn't want to walk away after three months and go well, because the public were incredible with me and they did vote for me. And I thought, 
well, there's some people out there that, that obviously like me and would maybe like to see more of, of what I'm doing. Yeah. But all I wanted to do was just work and have enough money to live and see my family. And and that's why coming back to Scotland, and I would have, if I had remained in London, I would have had no choice but to do that kind of stuff, you yeah, know? Yeah, just because of the expense of living and because, all of that sort of But stuff. also just life had moved on. The X Factor came along, you know, there was other singers. Leona Lewis was incredible on the X Factor. Oh, yeah. She was, was she like... The year I after think, you were I think two. Steve Brookstein was the first guy. Oh, yes. Steve Brookstein was the first and then I think Leona might have been the second and then I didn't really watch it after that just because I just for no other reason other than it was a different show that I didn't identify with because it was completely okay. different the setup. But the best thing I did was coming back home and just carving out a career for myself here and I have had but none of it would have been possible without Pop Idol so you've got to look back on Pop Idol and say it was still the most positive experience in my life and you know things didn't work out I didn't move to LA and marry Brad Pitt like I thought was going to happen the minute I won I was like so I'll give Brad about a couple of weeks till he notices me and he'll read about me in one of the papers here and then he'll ask to marry me you know that kind of thing so but none of this life I've got the now would have been possible without Pop Idol and the people that voted so you can only ever look back at that time as so positive. fondly oh but why not yeah I mean you know it was incredible it was incredible I mean for us watching it, like it was it was great telly I mean it was great telly and in, in a sense you were you were the underdog it's great to see the underdog like that that was incredible um, so when you when you signed with that management the new mm-hmm. management one of the things they did was they put you with Gillian McKeith yeah well, no, Jelly McKeith had been in. Jelly McKeith, I have to say, they cannot take the blame for that. Oh, Jelly, okay. Jelly McKeith had I already the started. Yeah, they can't take the blame for that. Jelly McKeith had already started because we're the old man. So what had happened was to explain. So I was with 19 Management and Sony BMG were my record label. So Sony BMG shut the door after about three months, four months. They weren't going to work. So I was still left with 19. So 19 uh, really didn't know what to do with me because there was no record co- uh, contract in place. So they were saying to me, like, what do you want to do with your life kind of thing? And I I kind of felt what they wanted to hear was, lose weight, is that what you want me to say? Lose weight. Okay, yeah, oh, I'll lose weight. And I did want to lose weight by that point because at that point I actually started to resent my weight for the first time ever in my life because I thought, this is all because of my weight. Blame? Oh, yeah. This is all because of my much, weight. Yeah. This is why this is not working. If I lose weight, everyone's going to love me. My life's going to become so much better. So I said to them, look, yeah, I want to lose weight. And I thought they were just going to maybe like ship me off to Thailand somewhere and I'd have my five colonics a day and get beaten up and have rice <laughs> and water. in a basement. Yeah, something like that. And so they, <laughs> they set that ball in motion with Jillian McKeith and the new magic company kind of took it over and kind of continued. And the thing with Jillian McKeith was I will never be able to thank Jillian McKeith enough because I lost 10 stone working with that woman out of sheer determination because oh, you know of how much I wanted to basically kill her from the minute I met her <laughs> and the thing was she was a lovely woman and I got on great with her but Gillian is just the way Gillian is you know and it's she's supposed to be unlikable you know she's supposed to be this character because you don't want to you don't want you know, to work with somebody that's trying to help you to lose weight who's like look it's okay if you have a, a wee piece and sausage and a couple of wee bags of chips and go along it's okay you want somebody that's going to be really horrible and on you continuously yeah, yeah, and suppose. from that point of view Gillian was brilliant you know and working with her was brilliant uh, I mean you know I don't keep in touch with her I don't see Gillian <laughs> I don't see her because she was really full on you know yeah. she would or- like we would go to a restaurant and she would order for me but not in a nice romantic kind of you know yeah. darling, I'm gonna, you know she's, like, she's not getting that she's not getting this not putting that down but she at that time in my life but then you know something I lost 10 stone 
and it didn't make me feel better. It didn't answer all my problems. I didn't get this big record deal. I didn't become this really, you know, famous singer that toured the world because that that ship had sailed and that had moved on. Of course, I felt healthier and I felt great. Uh, and I've put God, and uh, that was two thousand and five, two thousand six. You know, I've put on about like six, seven stones since then. Back on because I got married, and it's, honestly, there's nothing worse because for waking. Because you're happy. Because you're happy. happy. There's nothing worse oh than happiness. Oh my God, happiness is a nightmare for weight loss. <laughs> when you're angry, sad, and have children, uh, you'll, you'll, that's you'll it. <laughs> so we, but she was brilliant. But it, that whole experience of working with Jillian, I cannot tell you how completely surreal it was because she is exactly what you would expect it to be like you know and she but you know I got to give that woman her due she really did help she knows me. what to do yeah and she knows what to do and she and she got the re- and she got the results and that show was life-changing for me at the time because it was the first thing I had done since winning pop so it was a shame that it went from this kind of winning this competition and singing and then two years later the next thing that you're seeing on is this weight loss program um but I did it at a time in my life where I needed to do it I needed to just make sure this wasn't all about my weight and that I hadn't made it because of my weight and actually for my own self it was a great thing to do because when I realised it's actually got nothing to do with the weight at all it's about me just moving on and just taking on this experience and and taking all the positives out of it and just moving on and getting on with my life because it wasn't really real anyway what was happening you know it's TV world and it's not really real um and and we kind of we kind of moved on after that. But Gillian is is always good for a dinner story and a dinner party. And you know she she is she was she's helped so many people lose weight. <laughs> yeah, she does. I mean, she does great work. Like, but I just I just her wrath is terrifying. It is, and I've never been able to look at a Tupperware dish since. And it's been like what she makes people <laughs> oh, do. Yeah, if she just passed you the dish over. So if you wouldn't mind, just you're like what? <laughs> I mean, and then I found it after the show. I'm like. I don't even think, I mean, she's obviously, you know, obviously she goes through people's poo and has a wee look at it, which is insane. And I remember, I remember sitting with her after she had inspected whatever I had given her, right? I can't believe it. I'm sorry for, like, you can cut this out. <laughs> but I remember her getting through me, telling me how bad it was. I'm like, of course, it's shit. It's awful. <laughs> of course it is. It's not supposed to be a rose in a Tupperware dish, woman. And then I thought to myself, how relevant even is this? I think she just does this because she enjoys it. Yeah, I don't think I this know. is even relevant to the process of losing weight. So no, that's probably nothing to do with it. It's just like it's a, probably it's just a thing, thing she, she really gets. likes. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like you know that's what she really likes to. But yeah, no, that that was that was old Jillian <laughs> for you and, and the weight loss thing. But no, definitely coming back to Scotland and kind of just starting again and building yourself up and doing things that you really want to do, lovely, credible work, you know, and the things that I've done since I came back, you know, even just, you know, working um, work very much uh, with BBC, Scot- BBC Radio Scotland now, but even with STV at the time, it was incredible. You know, we were interviewing people like Brian May, David Cameron, we gave one Ed Sheeran one of his very first TV appearances oh, when wow. he came up. And we had, you know, John Cleese coming on the show who, I was shaking interviewing these people yeah, because I'm yeah. thinking, you know, this is proper idol stuff here. You know, we'd one of the Tennessee Three that had toured and worked with Johnny Cash for years and was able to tell us all this stuff about this man and Walk the Line had just came out, the movie oh, and wow. things like that. And it was, so from doing things like that, you know, and then singing for the Pope and the Queen when they came to Glasgow oh, wow. and, you know, hosting the, opening the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and hosting the main stage down at Glasgow Green and, you know, like last year, just singing with Rod Stewart and Susan Boyle at the Hydro for the big Lisbon Lions night and all of these things that I've done 
and it's not to name drop and list them. It's just, but I, it is incredible. But I wouldn't have been able to do any of this stuff had I not come back to Scotland. If I'd stayed in London and did all the reality TV shows that were going, I don't think my life would have turned no. out the way that it's turned out. And you do seem very content. I'm like you so do happy. seem like a happy person. Honestly, my life is incredible. I get to Scotland is a wonderful place to live, and you know something? It's creatively, it's really exciting up here. There's a lot of things happening. Yeah, I mean, when, when did you first start doing the Fringe? I, mean, I first started in well, I did the Fringe in 2007 and the most fantastic piece of theatre I've ever been involved in it was called Discotivity it was the <laughs> gayest version of the nativity you have ever seen amazing I played the Virgin Mary and came out singing like a Virgin Madonna which my Catholic parents were over the moon about uh, Joseph had gold lammy hot pants on my Joseph was really hot by the way really hot and uh, the angel Gabriel everybody was basically in gold lammy hot pants apart from me but I had this incredible blue kind of Donna Summer 70, 70 disco dress so we did that in 2007 and I loved doing that show that show was amazing Um, and then was about 2013 and we were in a little pub a little gay bar sadly no longer there in Dublin Street it was called the Newtown Bar and we were doing a big benefit for Waverly Care which deals a lot with uh, HIV and all that kind of stuff and afterwards we're all sitting getting drunk on a Sunday afternoon I think it was like Easter Sunday or something we'd done this big benefit gig and the pub got this phone call to say, you've been accepted as a venue this year for the Fringe, your venue 857. Oh, wow. So all the champagne corks got popped, everything. Everyone's like, well done, Jimmy. Well done, Stephen at the New Time Bar. And they eventually said, oh, bloody hell, we need an act. We don't have any acts to put on. Will you do something? So obviously I was tatty bongoed and I was like, absolutely, <laughs> Bruce and I'll do something. And then this is when Bruce said why don't we just do the story of you winning Pop Idol and all the stuff that's happened and you know take really take the piss out yourself do it as in you think you're this you know Beyonce's best pal and what not are you up for it and I was like yeah why not we didn't think we'd last one night but then someone from the Scotsman came in and gave us a five star review on the first night and it's like the Empress New Clothing after that in Edinburgh when you get a review like that I mean we woke up on the Tuesday morning and thought we were just still drunk when we heard about the review because the review came through really quickly, which was unheard of because it usually takes a wee yeah, while. Yeah, because if it takes a while and, they, and yep. sometimes you know it's out there and you're like, come on, I this need it to This review came in the next day wow. because we were only running for one week, so they knew that. Ah. So um, the review came in the next day and then we had, we literally, it was only a little tiny venue, like a 60-seater basement bar and within that one day the whole run had sold out I mean we had a busload of women coming up from Morningside and their perils and you know twin sets realising they were coming into a dark room essentially downstairs in a gay bar to go and see this show I'm like don't put your finger in there love that hole's not for that it's not, it's not what that's for you know just it's not you don't order your food through there and then just leave it but we uh, and and that's when it started. So we came. Uh, Tommy Shepherd at the time, who was running the stand, yeah, yeah. had had then came to us and Tommy said, "You need to bring this next year at the stand. We're just opening up a big new yurt in St Andrews Square. Come, please. We'll give you the seven thirty slot, whatever you want." And we did it for two weeks, and it sold out. And then we went away and wrote Reloaded because it was a musical show to begin with, the, the one that you saw uh, last year. And then we went away and wrote Reloaded. Uh, which we're going to do at the Fringe this year. And then the third and final instalment was the Pop Goes the Idol. So we wrote these three, this trilogy of one woman shows because there were so many stories and one just picks up where the next one left off. And never did we ever think that this was ever going to be as successful 
as it has been. And it's been like, I mean, the night I was there, I think I saw it on a Tuesday and it was to the rafters. Oh. Everyone having a ball. <laughs> it was, it, the thing was, it was great night. And last year was a really hard sale because we were in a brand new venue because we've been at St. Andrew's Square for the whole time, basically in the fringe. And because that, that whole square bit's now gone, we moved yeah, to a yeah. new venue. So actually the, it was really difficult the first couple, the first week or two for ticket sales because folk just thought I wasn't doing the fringe, you know? And it's, okay, again, yeah. how do you find a show when there's like 5,000? Yeah, yeah. But we, there's, we weren't, we, we did the three shows and we weren't going to come back and rerun them all again. But the standard kind of said, no, please just start from the beginning again and just run the three shows. So that's what we're doing, which will take me up. So if we do reload it this year, we'll do Pop Goes Ed on 2019. In 2020, I'll turn 40. So then I think we're going to do Michelle McManus turns 40 and do that kind of show. <laughs> a bit. And then I'm like, how the hell did I get to 40 when this house has happened? I know, I know. Yeah. So, but The Fringe has been the happiest mistake that ever happened to me. And comedy, you know, it's not my full-time job. I don't go out there gigging every week. I don't stand up in, in comedy clubs and do a set. That's not what I do. It's very much... But, I, but your stuff, like, it's very, it's very gaggy. Like, I mean, I'm a comedian and we, like, when comedians go to see other comedy, we nod and go, yeah, it's funny, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really big and compliment I laughed. for me. I broke my heart laughing. Like, I thought it was just so funny. It was just... Because I suppose that's the thing about comedy is comedy is a surprise. Like, you know, so it's like you need to hide the hide the punchline, you know, so it's a surprise. And then when Michelle McManus can actually do comedy, you're like, this is so funny. Do you know how many people, right, when I've, after the shows I've come out and there's big guys there that have been dragged, dragged kicking and screaming by their wives. And I'll go out and the guy, I'll be, I'll be honest, I thought this was going to be a pile of absolute pile of crap but it's actually really quite funny Hen. you did no bad you did no bad stuff because people just it's a really hard sell because see if I was going to see when I go to a theatre like see trying to sell these shows into theatres they do think mm, no nah, not for us really because I, I was surprised that you haven't you haven't toured it too much we, we've toured a little bit through Scotland and we've done the kind of smaller venues kind of like 200 250 seaters because see if I was to so I did the Kings a couple of years ago in Glasgow and it was 1800 seats when we sold it completely out because I had a 10 piece band on stage and I did a little bit of comedy but it was mainly singing singing's no bother to sell but people when they think of me doing comedy there are reservations there because they think they just can't see it and I don't blame them but I I know I mean I was completely surprised no but I don't blame them at all but the thing is it's it's not stand up comedy as in you know I just stand there and kind of do routines it's much more storytelling you know I grew up watching women like Elaine C. Smith and Dorothy Paul yeah, yeah, yeah. who are incredible Dorothy Paul was huge here in Scotland and it's the art of storytelling and singing so it's comedy cabaret more than anything and it's just it's a very hard sell for theatres you know um, and I don't really feel I'm quite at the stage where I could be taking on big theatres like Thousand Seaters and stuff. Like we did the Beacon Arts Centre in Greenock, which was 160 odd, and we sold it out really easy. And I'm happy to keep doing venues that size just now till word gets out there. Because we only really started this, if you think, five years ago. And I only do it once a year at the festival. So it's not like we're out there gigging all the time, yeah, pushing, yeah. pushing, pushing. You know, it's five times that it's happened in the last five years on, for a month. That's yeah. all we do it for. But I think because of my other work commitments and what I do, and we're back now, and I'm writing, and I've, I perform with these with these two guys, um, Stevie and Tim, who are the most incredible guitarists 
Uh, they're older than me. I'm sure they won't mind me saying that. But we do like Americana country music. Oh, and cool! We've written a lot of new material, and we're playing at a couple of festivals this month. And the fact that I get to do that, and there's no pressure on chart releases, or you oh, know, we brilliant. can just we can just you know when we we cut our EP and we do that, we can just release that for ourselves. We don't need a record label to do that. And then obviously all my work, we know with Radio Scotland and the hosting stuff that I do in Scotland, it that dominates my time and. You know, with the, I would always have done panto every year at Christmas. The last one I did was with the Crankies and David Hasselhoff, which was I cannot tell you. Oh my God, what's it like working what with the a Huff? Christmas sandwich that was? I'll tell you, it was amazing. He is, uh, he's otherworldly is the only way I can put it, but in the best way. You know, it's I, Michael Nice. Yeah, he was, he was just, he was brilliant. And the Crankies, uh, oh my God, see what they don't know about panto. It's not worth knowing. <laughs> they are phenomenal. They're in their seventies. They are absolutely in incredible. Honestly, see Jeanette and Ian. They, uh, Ian, we had been doing, it was, so it was kudos, huge, big. It was at, down at the Armadillo. It's three and a half thousand. It was two shows a day, so it's seven thousand a day coming to see this panto, right? It's the wow. biggest one in Scotland, huge. And I was playing Mimi the Magical Mermaid, right? So you can only imagine what I look like as a mermaid, right? But that's the magic of panto. The kids believed it. But um, the first couple of nights we were out there and uh, Ian was kind of waiting off the side of the stage for me, Ian Cranky, and he said, look, do you mind if I give you some some tips and advice I was like god no do you tell me he said see this joke you're doing do me a favour say it like this and see what happens so that night so this is the matinee so that night I went out to do the joke and I nearly got blown off the stage with laughter and I ran into his dressing room and I was like I need you to go through line by line what I'm doing because they are just they know it they've done it and they are incredible to work with oh, they're just wow. brilliant and kudos you know just no one does pantos like kudos you know they're just yeah. you know with the special effects and stuff for the kids it was on another level it really was um but because of the success of the one woman shows that last panto i did was 2015 in 2016 and 2017 i thought i'm gonna go for it and do my own christmas show because the, the festival oh, was getting yeah, so big yeah. so we we took a real leap of faith because panto's a lot of money and it's a lot of security at christmas you know it pays your tax bill in january all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. so you walk away from that i was kind of and it's a lot of fun you've got to love panto to do it and if you're working with the right people in the right company it's a joy it really is but we said we feel that the one women shows are because everyone would be uh, you know, and you're, you're you're able to flyer every night at your own show for your next show at Christmas. Yeah, you know, yeah. so we did Michelle McManus's Winter Wonderland, and we only did it for one night in 2016. It sold out, and then we did it for five nights this year, and it sold out. So now next year we're going to do it, this year we're going to do it for a week, and it's just great to be in a position where you're in control. So it's your That's, material and your shows. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of surprised at how like you're really integrating your own stuff as opposed to just getting a job. I know, well, I think because I really, all, what happened all the way back, you know, yeah. when I got dropped so quickly, you kind of feel you don't want to be in a position in your life where you're waiting for the phone to ring and we all do it. We all wait for that call to come through and, you know, I wake up every January and think, oh, is this going to be the last year? Is this going to be the last year that I'm going to be self-employed? And Because things are going great, but at some point it will all kind of dry yeah, up, I'm sure. So I think if you're creating and making your own work, you know, you'll know that yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing yeah, things I'm, that you do. I have that every six months that, yeah. uh, is this? No, but I mean, no, I mean with the amazing work you're doing, look what you're doing right now. You know, you're creating your own work. This is you. You're in control of your life kind yeah. of thing. So I think for me, if I can have an amazing August with a festival run and then have a bumper Christmas with the Christmas shows, that's two huge chunks 
of my year kind of work-wise that I'm involved with, that we're writing, producing, directing, doing all that kind of stuff. And I think if the Christmas shows can become, a, you know, this big annual event that happens as an alternative to a panto, and and it's, it's absolutely the same structure as what you would have seen in the festival. It's just that we've got a live band, we've got a 50-piece choir on stage. Oh, it's wow. on a much yeah, bigger, yeah. much bigger, and you can only get away with that at Christmas time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think if I can be, it means that I'm in control then, and, the, and any other bits of work that I get throughout when I'm working for the radio or the TV, these are all just great extras that are added on, but these are my two big things throughout they, the year. Because yeah. I want to get to a stage where, you know, I only got married in September, you know, not this year, but possibly next year if my husband and I are lucky enough to start a family. And, you know, it's good that I can be in control of my own work and I don't have to be worried about taking time off to have a baby and think, oh my God, what if I come back and there's I no know. work? And yeah, if you're in control, If you I'm do in that. control and we've got our own production company on the go and we're doing things anyway, then it makes life a little bit easier because that's what you know being self-employed has its pros and it has its cons too but if you can create some sort of stability for yourself then at least you know you've got those you've got that that shapes your year up you know well, that's kind of that seems to be you like you you seem very you just seem very grounded and very practical and very um just accepting as to, to what's going on well like, it's kind of a tonic talking to you oh <laughs> i know and i don't shop i'm so sorry but the thing is it's like that's what else, what other way is there to be? Because, you know, we're so lucky we get to do what we love. You know, I can imagine that, you know, you know, you're so passionate about your life and your career and I'm the same, but I wake up every day and I'm like, I know it's a cheese ball fest what I'm about to say, but it's true, I wake up and I'm like, this is my work. Sometimes I'm at my work and I'm like, this cannot be my work. This can't be work. This can't be work what I'm doing. You know, the yeah. great stuff that, I'm get, that, that I get to do and the wonderful people that I get to meet. And so... I think to be positive about it is you would be silly you 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 would be a waste for you not to look positively on yeah, something yeah it's, so e- it's so easy to be negative about it as well that's oh, the interesting thing like, I mean, you, can ha- you can have your afternoon where you of course you go into the dark basement oh and you just sit and you're like hello darkness my old friend I've come to talk to you you know you're just like everyone does it and I think that's the thing as well you know being self-employed and doing the job that we do you know it, it, it does have its moments where you can question your own mental health because you're kind of like Sometimes it's just hard to read stuff all the time about yourself. Sometimes it's hard if you've had a knockback, and sometimes it's hard if you've not had any work. If you, you know, if I'm looking at my diary and thinking, it's not really had an awful lot in there, kind of June, July time and yeah. stuff. Then you, you have to, work, of course, you have to worry and you have to panic because at the end of the day, you know, we're self-employed, and if we're not working, we're not bringing money in, and there can be real challenges doing the job that we do. But then for me, the good always outweighs the bad, you know, and you get. There's just moments where I just think how lucky I am and how amazing my life has been because of this one decision I made. Again, which I make all my decisions really drunk. Maybe I should admit I've got, I've got a problem here, but you know, if I had, I have had You're an advertisement for us. I know. Oh You're my an God. advertisement for a good night. It was really funny because it was either the Scottish government or Police Scotland or someone had got in touch with my manager company about me being the face of responsible drinking and stuff over Christmas and New Year. And they were like, look, Michelle is a responsible drinker, don't get me wrong, but she loves a wee tipple, probably not the best person <laughs> to be saying, you know, not that, of course, I completely advocate responsible drinking on every level, but, you know... But be, your photo would be in pubs and people would yeah, say, hold on a She second. was just down here last no, night shooting Zambuca through her eyeballs, that kind of thing. So, you know, and you, and I think I think that's been the lovely thing as well, is... is being able to do what you want to do work-wise, you know, not feeling you have to say yes to everything because 
because I choose to live in Scotland as well, you know, I don't have a big million pound house in London where I've got to earn so much money every month and yeah, the pressure yeah. that's on me. And I actually feel that when I go back down to work in London now, the very few occasions of the year when I'm down, whether I'm doing TV or radio or whatever, there is a totally different atmosphere when you walk down because there's a real, I get a real sense of pressure from people that they've got to... That are kind of your level, that they're... That you, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, but you get, you get a sense of people you know, that they've got to be relevant, they've they've got to keep themselves out there for work because it's such a, I mean, it's a totally different environment working down in London. Yeah. Whereas in Scotland... Seems very cultural. In in Scotland, there's just this, everything's so easy up here, you know, because the cost of living's different, you know. I've got a beautiful uh, tenement apartment in the south side of Glasgow. I drive a mini clubman, you know. I don't drive a huge big... So therefore, there's no pressure on me, you know, and I just... We get to, you know, we were able to go away and have a big three-day wedding up in the Highlands and go on a beautiful honeymoon. And now we're just, the house is getting, we're doing the house because we're going to be moving. And we can, I can do all of this because I'm so lucky that I get to work and live in Scotland and I get to choose the jobs that I want to do. I never go to my work thinking, God, I'm only doing this for the money. I've, I've got to come here. Yeah, I know. And that's a horrible thing. And usually, like... I've done a few of those where you do those well, Everyone has, like, everyone, oh. I know, but everyone has, don't get me wrong, but yeah. majority of the time, I think, just because of the decisions I've made in my life, and I've been lucky, the people that were around me, you know, from my lawyer introducing me to the to Alison, my manager, and the guys at Joe Garnett, to, you know, moving back to Scotland and working with SCV and BBC Radio Scotland, because of that journey I went through, and you learn so much on the way, because you, you start from zero again, you know, and you really learn about your industry, and you learn about your job that you're supposed to be doing, because at 23, when you go and do a singing contest for 12 weeks, it's all about your whirlwind, Julie. Really. It's exactly. not real life. Wow. God, well, Michelle, it's been incredible. Oh, I'm sorry. I've not shut up. You'll probably edit amazing. this all down completely. <laughs> no, Cut it's great. Out. Jesus, it was all, like, it's all gold. Thanks oh, thank you, my love. Cheers. So lovely Cheers. to see you again. That was the fantastic Michelle McManus there. Michelle will be back at the Edinburgh Fringe this year with her show Michelle McManus Reloaded. She will be playing for the month of August at Stand 3 over in Newtown. That's the Stand Comedy Club. She'll be on at 10 past 6 every evening. And there is a ticket link in the information along with this podcast. And also you can follow Michelle on social media. She is Lady M underscore McManus on Twitter and on Instagram. I am Garode Farrelly on both and I'm new to Instagram. So give me a follow there and you will get tons of photographs of my cat. I'm away on tour this week and I really miss her. That is about the most tragic thing I've ever said on this podcast. But anyway, I really do. I'll be home soon, Boots. There will be a new episode soon and I can't not remember who... Oh! Yes! I know who's next. Next episode is an amazing one. Uh, I'll give you a little clue. It is an early 2000s pop duo. Uh, and I will just say one more word. Reading. Okay, that's enough. I think I've probably said too much there, but they were hilarious. This is such a funny interview. It's the first time I've ever interviewed two people and they were such good fun. So uh, yeah, get subscribed for that one because you really don't want to miss it. It'll be out soon. Thanks to Michelle uh, and to everybody at the Headstuff Podcast Network. They are a lovely group of people. Absolutely lovely. You can check out their other shows. One of my favourites is The Alison Spittle Show. So definitely check that out. Thanks for listening. After the album, she embarked on a weightless journey. Weightless journey? Weightless. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
Free Kids Workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com kids. For 25 years, the Home Depot has been building confident, future doers with its free kids' workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Lost Buys Last, U.S. only.